Um, God, thank you for uh, this passage, and uh, uh, Lord, thanks for how challenging it's been, um, at least particularly to me, and Lord, I pray that uh, your spirit would use it this week in our lives to encourage us and to challenge us and correct us and train us in righteousness, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So I do have to say that the bulk of our passage today has to do with both a, a miraculous healing and a miraculous resurrection from the dead. And just being honest, as your pastor, I've wrestled deeply with these two miracles throughout the course of this week, because at this moment in time, uh, there are some in our church who we would love to see miraculously healed. Uh, we'd love to see them healed of sickness or of uh, depression or emotional, relational wounds. And we'd love to see that happen. There are uh, some in our church who've lost loved ones, uh, whether that's recently or a long time ago, but who we'd love to have back. And so as I uh, wrestled through this passage this week and wondering, well, how, how do you preach this? Uh, how, how do you walk through this? And, and I kept thinking that there's both the healing and a resurrection in this passage, but, but as we've seen so far as we've gone through the book of Acts, that neither thing is an absolute promise for the Christian. In fact, resurrections are extremely rare in Scripture. They happen, but they're very rare in Scripture and are never presented in Scripture as a promise for the Christian to claim. And so I approached this passage with the recognition that it would be pastoral malpractice for me to stand here and guarantee in one way or another that God will heal you or a loved one. Uh, I can't guarantee that. And so the question then is, if this passage isn't here as a promise or as a formula, for us to follow to get healing or to bring about a resurrection, then why is it here? What's it here for? Now, why put this in here at all if it doesn't give us a pattern or a formula to follow? Well, well, we'll answer that as we go through, but let me just take a break from the heaviness of that for a moment, and um, this is a very hard left turn, and let's think about architecture, okay? Uh, I mean, I used to live uh, in the city in England uh, that was dominated by not one but two cathedrals. And so, can we put the, there should be one there, a little pixelated. Can we go to that one, Lance? There we go. Sorry, it's very pixelated. But um, it was dominated by uh, not one but two cathedrals. And one of them, this is the Metropolitan Cathedral of Christ the King. Uh, and it's affectionately known as Patty's Wigwam. Um, it's, a, it's the Catholic cathedral, and lots of Irish Catholics moved, and so that's why they use that derogatory term. But wigwam, because it looks like a teepee, and so it's affectionately known as, in the city as Patty's Wigwam. Uh, or it's also called the spaceship for obvious reasons. And the other one, uh, go to the next one, the other one is called the telephone booth. Now, you might look at that and think, why is that a telephone booth? Well, let me tell you why. Uh, because the man who designed it uh, only ever had two commissions in his whole entire life. And so when he was a young architect, he got this great commission where he designed this. Can we go to the next one? He designed the iconic red telephone booth, and then the, the next thing he designed turned out to be the fourth largest cathedral in the world. So he went from telephone booth to cathedral. But if you go back one slide, it kind of looks like it. It's red brick, it's kind of got that look to it. Um, and so uh, here's the question, though. We can move on from those, sorry. But why build a cathedral? What's the point? Why, why build one? Or for that matter, why for so long did church buildings look so much different from every other building on the street. You know, if you're driving up Edenhurst Avenue, you'll see house and house and house and apartment, and then all of a sudden you'll see this thing that has a steeple and stained glass. Why does it look different? 
You know, most modern churches, they're much more utilitarian and they're intentionally designed to look more like a school or uh, an auditorium or, or um, you know, an office building than a church. In other words, they're designed to sort of fit in, to blend in, which has its merits, uh, but I think actually misses out on one of the key reasons for sacred architecture. You know, the reason to build a church building so differently from every other building on the street is actually for distinction, so that it does look different. It's meant to stand out. It's meant to say that something unique and something significant, something happens in this place that doesn't happen in an office building or a restaurant or a school or a home. Uh, it's different than the house next door. It's different than the school up the street. It's meant to cause neighbors and visitors to a city or a town where that church is. It's meant to cause them to take notice. Oh, that building is different. Its windows are colored. Uh, it's got a tall steeple on it. It's meant to cause you to, to see that's distinct on the, the horizon of this town or this city. And it's almost meant to cause you to want to look in at what happens in there. And I think the overall point of this passage, the main reason this passage is here, is to show us that far more than a building, the life of an individual Christian and the activities of a church community ought to be so distinct in the city that everyone else takes notice. Now, it's possible that I say that to you and you immediately think of something like a strange, strange uh, Christian subculture, uh, you know, something like wearing a certain type of clothing that uh, only has fishes on it or something, I don't know, uh, or only listening to a certain type of music. You know, I only listen to this kind of, this genre of music if it's Christian music, right? Or only eating chicken from a certain fast food place. Like, that's what we tend to think of. And, they certainly could make a Christian distinct, those things, but that's not the idea here. Uh, Jesus said in John 13, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Not by your clothing, and not by your taste in music, or by any other thing. The distinction of the Christian has to do with love. That's how they'll know. And that is the kind of distinction that the passage we're looking at today, it, it, it hints at that. And so when I say both individual Christians and local churches ought to be distinct enough that the city takes notice, I don't mean for its subculture. I mean for the character, for the loving actions of the individuals and the, the corporate body of the church. So let's take a look at this, and we're going to do it through the lens of verse 31. The eagle-eyed among you will notice that that was part of the previous paragraph, but there I had it read uh, today, but verse 31, is, it's actually one of Luke's many summary statements. And he does this from time to time, partly because the book of Acts is such a long book. But what he does is he gives these little summary statements that both summarize what's been happening, and it kind of points forward, looks forward to what's going to happen in the next section of the book, and what's he going to talk about next. And there's about nine, seven or nine of them in total in the book of Acts. And so, you know, we looked at this a while back, but Acts 2, 42 to 47, that's a summary Acts 6, verse 7, uh, it says, So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. That's a summary of what's been happening and what's going to happen. And each of these summary statements says something about what's happening and what will happen inside the church, and then how it's going to spread. Uh, how the church is flourishing internally and spreading externally. And our verse today, Acts 9.31, I hope you still have that open. It's another of those summary statements. You can look at it again. It says, Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, 
it increased in numbers. And so you can see uh, both elements of internal flourishing and external spreading happening here. Internally, it says that they're enjoying peace, which is in contrast to the persecution that Saul had been putting them through. Remember, he was breathing out, actually breathing in murderous threats. Remember that from last week? It also says that they were strengthened. They were living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. That's all internal stuff. And even within that, the internal stuff, there's actually a distinction between the flourishing of the church body, corporate flourishing, it talks about them being strengthened and enjoying a time of peace, that's corporate language. Uh, but also there's a mention of individual personal growth, uh, that they're being, uh, growing in the fear of the Lord and being encouraged by the Spirit. Let's talk about individual growth. And then ex externally it says that the church increased in numbers. And so there's a pattern there that you see actually emerges out of all these different summaries. The pattern is basically this, that within these early churches, they were focused on growing and strengthening their unity with one another. They're focusing on individual, personal, spiritual growth. And they're focused on evangelism, focused on reaching others with the gospel. Those are three things, three things that these early churches held in balance. And it's interesting, if you look at that, it, when it comes to, to modern churches, many churches today tend to focus on just one or maybe two of those things to the exclusion of the other one or two. And so you can end up with churches that are sort of out of balance. One, uh, one kind of church, maybe they're only focused on uh, strengthening the unity, the bonds, the friendships within the church. And what you end up with is a church that ends up being kind of insular. You know, it's the sort of us four and no more, and we have our friends, and anybody that's new kind of bounces off the surface. Uh, and so, you know, they're not thinking about personal growth. They're not thinking about evangelism. Or you can end up with churches that are only focused on uh, sort of uh, individual personal growth of the Christian. And so you can end up on the one hand with some churches that they're very heady, you know, they like, they like their theology, they like to teach all the time, and that, that's the thing that they do. Or on the other end of the spectrum, you can end up with churches that tend to focus more on the emotion, on the heart of the Christian. Uh, and they look at that maybe to uh, the detriment of Christian community or reaching the lost. But thirdly, you can end up with churches that are only about the seeker, about the non-Christian uh, they don't give much attention to a person's spiritual growth once they become a Christian or getting them connected and deeply with others in the church. And so you can end up with churches out of balance. But what we have here in Acts chapter 9, verse 31, and in almost all of these summary statements, is a balance of churches that are building unity within the church, of individual spiritual growth and of numerical growth. In other words, they're reaching non-Christians. And I love, you know, I, I like order. I like things that are organized. I, I like things to fit like one, two, three. That's why you get three points every week because I like that sort of thing. Some of you probably hate it, but whatever. I like it. And I love how organized this is. Uh, it was not hard for me to find that structure in those verses because it's just there on the surface. It's one, two, three, you know, easy little outline. Problem is, the rest of this passage, Luke tells two stories, and what he does is he just jumbles it all together. He's not so cut and dry. He's kind of all over the map in both stories, which annoyed me at first because I'm like, come on, Luke, follow your own outline and make life easy for the rest of us. And the more I wrestle with that, the more I realize that I, actually maybe Luke's trying to illustrate something here with how jumbled these things are. That life is never that cut and dry. I mean, think about it. Your life never just goes one, two, three. You know, it's never like point one, point two, point three, and everything is great. Life doesn't work that way. It's much messier than a neat one, two, three outline. And so what that means is we actually have to find a few themes in here if we want to be the kind of balanced church that's being talked about in verse 31. Uh, to be this kind of balanced church that cares about 
uh, unity within the body that cares about individual spiritual growth and cares about evangelism. You need the, uh, there's three things that do emerge out of here because I do like my three points. So there's three things that do emerge out of here, uh, three themes uh, that help us become that kind of balanced church. And here's the three themes that are in here. Number one, there's intentional leadership. Number two, there's responsiveness to needs. And then number three, there's a Christ-centeredness to what happens uh, in these two stories. And our two stories are, that are about extraordinary miracles, they, they bring these three things, intentional leadership, responsiveness to needs, and Christ-centeredness, they, they bring these things into focus the, the longer you look at it. So let's just look at this part one, intentional leadership. And there's a word picture that Luke uses back uh, in verse 31 that has to do with building a house. Uh, across the street from where we live, uh, they've been building a house, taking them two years to build this house uh, for lots of different reasons. One, they, it's kind of carved out of the side of a mountain, so that takes a little bit of time, but all the shortages of things. But what that means is almost every day for two years, I've been watching people build a house. And they start with a foundation, and then they build, start to build the walls, and you see them put the electrical in, and you watch them put the plumbing in, and then they start to put the outside structure on. So you watch them step by step by step by step by step build the house until eventually they're like screwing in the light bulbs of all the external uh, lights, and, and it's like, okay, job's done, they've done the house. And I've been watching this for two years. Uh, and that's the picture, actually, that Luke uses in verse 31 when he says the word strengthen. He says the church was strengthened. Do you see that there? Uh, the church throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. That is actually the word for building a house. Uh, you could translate the church was being built up like a house. Uh, and it's a great word picture. Uh, but the use of that word uh, actually connects this passage with another one. Uh, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says to Peter, the person who is at the center of these two stories here. So we're looking back. Jesus is talking to Peter. Peter is who these two stories are about. Here's what Jesus says to Peter in Matthew 16, verse 18. He says, and I tell you that you are Peter. That's when he renames him. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And when Jesus says on this rock, I will build my church, that's the same word. The same word for building a house as in our passage. And I think Luke is making a reference much the same way that if you know me well enough, you know that I'm constantly referencing Wayne's world in one way or another. At least three times a day, I am quoting it and not just saying party on, but I, all the time I'm quoting. I don't even realize now when I'm doing it. And I think Luke is doing something like that. He's making a reference. He's, he's trying to jog your memory of something. Uh, so when he says the church is being built up, he's trying to say, hey, I'm going to start talking about Peter. Remember, Peter is the one who Jesus said he was going to build his church upon. And so this is how he introduces Peter into the story. He hasn't talked about Peter for a long time, and now all of a sudden, Peter. And so, uh, so here we have uh, Luke saying, we're going to talk about Peter. And then we have these two stories of Peter going around building up the church. And this is where we see intentional leadership emerge, because what Peter, look at, look at what he's doing, verse 32, as Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. It seems like a throwaway line, just saying, oh, here's what happened next. But actually, you see intentionality here. You see him traveling all about the country, visiting the Christians. In other words, what's he doing? He's going around and he's intentionally, place by place, visiting these churches and building them up. Because if you remember what happened, uh, early on in the story, persecution came uh, into the, the church in Jerusalem. It was basically like a big mega church in Jerusalem. All the Christians were together, and then they started getting persecuted. Remember what it said? It said that all the believers were scattered all throughout Judea and Samaria. Do you remember that? 
Uh, and so what that, and then it said that all the apostles stayed back in Jerusalem. So they're just, they're back there, and all these people are out now starting churches all over Jerusalem and all over Judea and Samaria, and they have no leadership. And so now they're enjoying a time of peace, which means Peter can go on the road. And so he's out on the road intentionally building up these churches. Uh, and so uh, he's intentionally going around doing that, and he's fulfilling actually this calling that Jesus put on his life. That he is the rock upon whom Christ will build his church. So you see Peter fulfilling this calling. And again, it's jumbled up within both of the stories, but in each place, uh, not only is he building up the corporate body, but in each place he invests in individuals. Uh, and uh, he's investing uh, in, um, verse, down in verse 41, uh, he's, he's investing in Tabitha, he's investing in individuals. And uh, in verse 32, he's investing in Aeneas, this uh, paralytic. And so he's investing time uh, in individuals. Um, and, uh, and so you see Peter just investing and building into this church. Uh, and then, by the way, it also says that after that happens, what happens? The word spreads. Everything, it, it spreads all around in the, the city and the surrounding area. And so the first way we see a church becoming balanced in its ability to build unity within and encourage uh, spiritual growth, individual, personal spiritual growth, and reach out to non-Christians is through this intentional leadership. Um, just thinking about our church for a minute, uh, there's no Apostle Peter in our church. Uh, I can guarantee you that. But God has appointed leaders. We have pastors and elders and trustees and ministry team leaders. So there's leadership in the church. God has given leaders to our church. And what some of our leadership has been working out over the past couple of months uh, are ways that we can be this balanced church where we intentionally give the right amount of effort and energy to all three of those areas of unity within the body, of personal, individual, spiritual growth, and evangelism. And by the way, that doesn't mean that they all get the exact same amount of time, uh, or even that we'll always do all three things at the exact same time. Churches go through seasons. But a balanced church cares deeply about all three things, unity amongst the body, personal, individual, spiritual growth, and evangelism. And these are three areas where we're hoping to take some good strides over the next year. And so you're going to be hearing a lot over the next few months about ways to strengthen the unity in our church through serving one another and caring for one another. You're going to be presented with ways and opportunities to grow personally. And we'll be opening up more and more opportunities for us to engage with uh, people in our neighborhood and our city who don't yet know Christ. We want to be that balanced church. That's why we're doing it. We want to, we want to be an Acts 931 church that is growing in unity, growing spiritually, growing numerically. Uh, intentional leadership, that's the first theme that Luke gives us as a way to become that kind of church. But secondly, and then this is part two, the second theme that's there, the church that becomes balanced like that has a responsiveness to needs. And of course, Peter is a great example of this, and we'll look at his responsiveness in a second. But before we do that, there's also this wonderful story about a woman who is responsive to the needs of the other women around her. Uh, her name is Tabitha. Uh, you can see that down in verse 36. And then for some reason, uh, I think mostly for the entertainment of modern English speakers today, a couple of millennia later, it gives her Greek, a Greek translation of her name, which is Dorcas. Um, and I'm just being honest, I can identify with Dorcas on this, um, not because, well, maybe I am a dork, I don't know, but um, I'm sure I've mentioned this multiple times before, but I also have a weird translation of my name in the Greek language. 
Um, it, it's just as embarrassing, maybe more embarrassing. I think I've said this before, but my wife, Emmy, she grew up part of her life in Greece, and so we've been there quite a few times to visit family and friends. Uh, and we actually, uh, her family was still living there when we got married. And uh, so we get over there, and uh, I realized very quickly, because I know a little bit of Greek, uh, what the name Ken actually translates to in Greek. And so I'd be going around meeting Emmy's family and friends and all these really important people in her life. And uh, the word Ken or Kenos in Greek actually means vain or empty. Uh, you could translate that as airhead. And so it was like walking around saying, hi, my name's Airhead. Nice to meet you. Like, that's how I'd be introducing myself. And I'm marrying your daughter. Isn't that great? Um, well, Dorcas, uh, actually, it means something quite nice uh, rather than how we would take it as something mean. Uh, it actually it means gazelle. That's a nice, you know, a gazelle is a beautiful and graceful animal. So it means something nice. Um, and notice the incredible responsiveness to needs that Tabitha models for us. It says down in verse 37 that she had become sick and died. Uh, which again, in the ancient world, that sort of thing happened a lot because they didn't have modern medicine. And so, uh, and so that sort of thing happened a lot um, and maybe passing away long before her time. And yet when Tabitha dies, two men, uh, it says they, these two men, they rush from Joppa to Lydda to beg Peter to come and raise her from the dead. Now, I don't know how they got in their mind the idea that, oh, yeah, if we just get Peter to come, you know, she'll come back. I don't know how they got that idea, but they did. They got that idea. And so they rushed down there, and they asked Peter to come uh, up to their city to, uh, to, to raise her from the dead. And so you read this, and you think, Tabitha must have been an incredible woman. She was well-loved, respected. Uh, and in fact, she is, because look at what she's known for. In verse 39, when Peter gets there, it says, he's taken to the room where her body is lying. And it says, verse 39... All the widows stood around him crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was with them. All the widows of the town, they're mourning her because she had made them, it literally says, undergarments and outer garments. So she's made them uh, underwear and clothes. Uh, and so there they are showing Peter, well, hopefully not their underwear, but you know, what it says they sh they're showing them what she made. So could be very awkward. Maybe that's why he sent them out of the room. I don't know. That's... But widows, particularly in the ancient world, they're, they're often poor and without much status in the community. And so they were an afterthought. But not to Tabitha. She looked at these poor and marginalized women and she responded to their needs for just the basics, like clothing. She looked after them. And because of that, she's deeply loved. Which does show us something. This is just an aside. This is just a throw-in for free. But if you want to be loved... It often starts with loving others unconditionally. Loving people who can't, like these women couldn't give anything back to her. And so if you want to be loved, it start, often starts with loving others unconditionally. Self-sacrificing love where you put others' needs before your own. And so Tabitha in scripture is a shining example of this. And of course so is Peter because what do we see him doing? Well, when he gets to Lydda, he comes across a paralytic and he heals him. And then when the men come hurrying down from uh, Joppa and ask him to come and raise Tabitha from the dead, what does he do? He, he drops what he's doing, and he hurries back with them the 12 miles in between the two cities. And so what's being modeled is this church that balances unity and spiritual growth and evangelism is actually one that responds to the needs of others with grace and compassion. And doesn't say, I'll get around to that. They respond immediately. 
Uh, years ago, I worked with a pastor, and he always used to simplify this theme like this. He would say, see a need, meet a need. I like that. It's simple. Just see, you see a need, you just, you just meet it. Somebody needs something, and you can do it, then you just do it. Um, and if you think about that, think about the power for unity in doing that sort of thing. Imagine the connection, the loyalty, the amalgamation, the accord, the cooperation, the oneness, the cohesion of a group of people who every time they saw someone else's need and they had the ability to meet that need, they just did it. And imagine the reciprocation of that. The person whose need was met is far more likely then to meet the needs of another person who's in need. But not only the unity, think about the spiritual growth that comes from serving others sacrificially. You are never more like Jesus than when you are sacrificing on the behalf of someone else. What is Jesus known for? Sacrificing himself for us. And so we're never more like him than in those times when we're sacrificing ourselves for the sake of others. And so the more that you do that, the more that you become like Jesus. And think about Tabitha. She's literally covering the nakedness and the shame of these poor women. The, you know, the Bible talks about how we're clothed in Christ's righteousness, that Christ covers our nakedness and our shame with his righteousness. And so what Tabitha is doing by making clothes and giving it to these women who would have nothing otherwise, she's clothing them. She's a picture. She's a model. And of course, what Peter did by healing Aeneas and raising Tabitha from the dead is a picture of that as well. And then notice the result of these needs being met. It says in verse 35, all those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him, Aeneas, the one who was paralyzed, they saw him walking around and they turned to the Lord. And then down in verse 42, this became known all over Joppa. This is Tabitha being raised from the dead. This became all known all over Joppa and many people believed in the Lord. And so here's what that tells us. That when needs get met, the city takes notice. And so do you see this balance in there? Unity in the church, spiritual growth, evangelism, these things, they, they come through intentional leadership and they come through responsiveness to needs. And then finally, part three, this balance comes through being Christ-centered. And it's actually at this point where we can come back to the question we started with. If healings and resurrections aren't the norm, if we're not promised them, then why are they even in here? Why put these in here if it's not a pattern of healing our loved ones? Well, if you, if you look at it long enough, they are a pattern. But not one to perform miracles. They're, they're actually, each of these, both of these healings, are a pattern of the gospel itself. Over in Ephesians chapter 2, it says, verse 1, and this is speaking, by the way, of every single human heart. It's speaking of your heart, of my heart, uh, of every person who has ever or will ever live. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, it says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. That's a, that's a picture of lying down. You're dead. It actually goes on to say that we're all spiritually dead because of our disobedience, because of how uh, we follow and satisfy the cravings of our flesh. In other words, what that's saying is we have desires that we know are wrong, harmful to ourselves, harmful to others, and yet we do it anyway. And because of that, what it's saying is that we're spiritually dead. We're, we're spiritually laying down. We're dead. Every human is born that way. And yet, Ephesians chapter 2 goes on to say this in verse 4. But because of his, speaking of God, because of his great love for us, 
God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by his grace you have been saved. And listen to this language. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And so, yes, hallelujah. Do you hear that language of being dead and made alive? Of being raised up? And, you know, if we fully grasp the depths and the richness of what is promised to someone who is healed, who is made alive, who is raised up spiritually, we would become far less concerned with our physical state and ask God to hear us of our spiritual death. Did you notice what it said in verses 6 and and 7? It says, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Right there, that's talking about an eternal, incomparable richness and kindness that far outshines ever being able to walk again or even being able to breathe again in this life. And so, yes, to be healed physically is wonderful. But how much more to be healed spiritually of our spiritual death To be healed of that is to have Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3 answered for you. Do you know what he prays for this church that has been raised up and made alive? This is what he prays for them. He says, for this reason I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And he's not even done yet. He says, now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. So even more than what he just said, he can do more than that. According to his power that is at work with us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And that is the promise of every person who has died knowing Christ. Every Christian who has passed is right now experiencing the incomparable riches and kindness of Christ. It is being poured out on the, in the richness, out of his glorious riches. They are fully and without any hindrance whatsoever grasping how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Filled to all the measure of the fullness of God. Living in his glorious radiant light. And that is something we can only ever grasp partially in this life. And so let's go back to Acts 9, because what Peter is doing by healing Aeneas and raising Tabitha from the dead, do you know what he's doing? He's enacting this pattern of salvation. It is a picture, an illustration of what is possible for every person's spiritual condition if they will place their faith in Christ alone for salvation. Because did you notice what Peter says to both of them? Look really closely. He says the exact same thing to both Aeneas and Tabitha. Look at this, verse 34. What does he say to Aeneas? Get up. 
Skip down to verse 40. What does he say to Tabitha? Get up. Luke uses the same word. The, the original language uh, uses the same word both times. It's get up, it's rise. It's actually the word for resurrect. When the gospel writers, Luke himself, when they're talking about Jesus being raised up from the dead, getting up from the grave, do you know what word they use? This one. Get up, he says. That's the pattern. Peter comes across a person who can't get up, who's paralyzed, a person who is dead. And in the name of Christ, both times he says, get up. And then he sends them on their way transformed. So he tells the paralytic, he basically says, get up and make your bed. Clean up your room. He takes Tabitha out and he presents her to the church where she can carry on serving them. And each time, that's the pattern of salvation, the picture of what is possible spiritually for every person. You were dead in your trans transgressions and sins. But because of his immense love, God has raised you up. Get up, he says. And he has seated you with Christ and shared with you his incomparable riches and his kindness. And so that's why this is here. It's yet another picture. And we've said this multiple times as we've come across passages like this with healings in them, that any healing you come across in Scripture, it's a first fruits. And do you remember what first fruits are? It's the first apples of the season. It's the first oranges of the season. It's the first ears of corn, the first heads of grain, the first lamb of the season. You know, they sprout or they're born before the main crop. And the first fruits are what gives the farmer hope that they'll have a full harvest. It's only pointing, to, pointing forward to the full harvest. The first fruits say the harvest is coming just a few more days, just a few more weeks, and the fields will be ripe. That's the first fruits. And these two healings are, uh, like all the others, are first fruits. They're just a picture of what is to come. Something to give us hope for the day when all those who are trusting in Christ will be healed from every. He'll say, Get up. We'll all be healed. From any sickness, any disease, any deformity, any injury, any mental impairment, any depression, all of it healed ultimately and forever. It's the eternal get up. And that's what this is pointing to. A get up and take your mat for everyone. Now here's how I think we should apply this. Uh, this message of salvation, this pattern, it's, it's actually something we carry around with us everywhere we go. Uh, the Apostle Paul says in one of the letters to the Corinthians is, I carry around in my body the message of Jesus everywhere I go. And that, that's the idea here. We carry this pattern, this message with us everywhere we go. And yeah, we can go around just telling everyone we meet about salvation, and God will use that. You can have your own non sequitur and just be, you know, all of a sudden just be like, have I told you about Jesus? You, you can do that. Uh, and I don't want to stop anybody from doing that. But the pattern that we see over and over and over again in the book of Acts is the church flourishes and as a result of the flourishing, the gospel spreads. And one of the ways it flourishes in this passage is genuine, self-sacrificial love and service for other people. And so as the church was strengthened, as the church grew in its love for one another and served one another and served its community, it gained the opportunity to share about the pattern of salvation, the good news of the gospel. I put it like this, the more distinguished or distinct we are in our love for one another and for those that we live near and we work with, we interact with in the city, the more we earn the right to share the gospel. Uh, one last story just to illustrate this. Um, Emmy was on her way. We were, uh, we were overseas for a couple of weeks and Emmy stayed a little bit longer than I did and so she flew back separately and she had a, a layover in Chicago. 
And uh, her flight leaving uh, Europe was delayed, and so she got to Chicago too late to catch her connecting flight. And so uh, her and a bunch of other people that were on that flight were in the same boat. And so the airline says to the, I don't know, a dozen or so of them, uh, we're going to put you up in one of those airport hotels uh, nearby, and we'll give you a, a meal voucher for tonight and tomorrow morning. And so Emmy's like, she's a little frustrated, she's tired, she wants to come home. And, she takes a shuttle to the hotel, and she's standing in line behind this old, this elderly couple. And uh, they were, uh, she found out later they're from, um, I think it was Kenya. And uh, the, they're, 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 she said they're in their 80s. And the wife didn't speak any English at all, and the man spoke really pretty good English. And so they're standing, Emmy's behind them, and they're just confused. They don't understand what's happening. And so they've just basically been whisked from the airport to this hotel, and they're like, I guess we're staying here? I don't know. And then he says to the person at the counter, I don't know where my bags are. And I'm worried because I'm supposed to go to Dallas tomorrow, and I don't have my bags, and I don't know what I'm supposed to do about it. And the man at the counter is like, well, I don't know. I don't work for the airline. I have nothing to do with that. And so he checks him in, and then the man stands and is talking to his wife off to the side, and Emmy checks in. And, uh, and he's tired and exhausted, and she thinks, oh, I should do something about this. So she goes over to the man and says, tell me what's going on with your bags. And he goes, I don't, I don't know what to do. I didn't get my bags. And she says, well, did you like, recheck them when you went through? And he's like, no. And she goes, OK, you're supposed to do that. And uh, she goes up to the counter. She says, is there a shuttle going back to the airport? And he goes, yeah, there's one last shuttle to the airport. And then a half hour later, another shuttle coming back, and that's it. And so Emmy says to the man, OK, let's go to the airport. So they get on the shuttle to go to the airport. And uh, the guy in the shuttle is like, okay, you have 30 minutes, so don't spend any more than that. Otherwise, you're stuck here. You have to take an Uber back. And so they go in, and Emmy sorts something out for this man uh, with his bags, and they catch the last shuttle back. And they get back. As they're on their way back to the hotel, the man says, I don't have any way to call my family to tell them, so can you help me call my family? So Emmy says, sure, give me the number. So she calls, she calls this guy's family in Dallas. Is like, hi, you don't know me, but I'm here with your relative. I don't know who he is to you, but and puts him on the phone, explains the whole situation. And then the man's like, well, we don't know what to do. What's this piece of paper about dinner? I don't understand. And he goes, OK, come on, let's go down to the dining, to the restaurant and the hotel. And it's like 10 o'clock at this point, And the kitchen is closing in like three minutes or something. And so she, they rush in. And, and they hand this guy the menu, and he's trying to translate it for his wife. And he basically is like, I don't understand what a blooming onion is and all the stuff that's on the menu. <laughs> and so he says to the waitress, do you have something like boiled potatoes and rice? You know, that's comfort food for him. And, and she's like, we have French fries. He's like, mm, I don't know. So Emmy ends up ordering something that she thinks will be OK for them. And in the midst of all of this, the man says to Emmy, you're a Christian, aren't you? That is distinction. That's distinction. And so when Peter goes around healing somebody and raising someone from the dead, and when Tabitha goes around making undergarments for old women, that's distinction. And that's why I think Luke puts this in here, because he's saying it's not just about the apostles going around. It's about the church being distinct in its community. It's about the church living out this good news of the gospel. And when that happens, the city takes notice. Everyone takes notice. That's distinction. And so when we have this kind of balance as a church, building unity within, serving one another, loving one another self-sacrificially, growing individually, spiritually in Christ, becoming more and more like him, and telling others about him, then you get the result of verse 31, and the church has continued to grow in all these places. John 13, 35, where we started, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another, 
And that's why I think this is in here. It's a weird passage, but that's why I think it's here. So let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for this strange passage about things that we, we feel like we could never touch or imagine, these extraordinary things. But Lord, the ordinary stuff that's in here of just love and sacrifice and caring for other people and others looking in and wanting that for themselves, Lord, we can do that. And so, Lord, would you help us? Help us to be that distinct. Help us to be that distinct in our, uh, on our streets, in our neighborhoods, in our places of work, in our families. That because of this sacrificial love that we show, this unity that we have, this depth of growing spiritually, that people would look at us and, and they couldn't have any other explanation but to say, oh, you're a Christian, aren't you? And Lord, we pray that what it says in verse 31, that the church continued to grow, we pray that would happen here as well. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.